재미와 지식의 오디오 라이프 팝빵. Time for International News Digest. Let's get some analysis on some of the major stories making headlines around the world. Starting in Japan. Last week, their defense ministry unveiled its request for a record defense budget of nearly 5.2 trillion yen for the fiscal year 2017, citing the growing nuclear and missile threats from North Korea as well as tensions with China. Uh, this budget is yet another indication of Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's uh, controversial bid to, quote, normalize the country's security posture and seek a more proactive role for its military. So to help us find out more about this situation, very pleased to have joining us from the Center for Asian Security Studies at the Norwegian Institute for Defense Studies, Professor Ian Bowers. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me on. Professor Bowers, thank you for joining us. Uh, so this budget proposal uh, for 2017, raising some eyebrows here in South Korea and I imagine in China as well, where the, th- sure. the, the belief is that this uh, rearmament ambition is no longer in doubt. Uh, would you agree with that? Um, well, I think we have to be careful when we use a, a term like rearmament. The reality is is that uh, Japan is a developed country, and uh, developed countries modernize their armed forces. The one big difference now is that they're doing it with uh, two, two uh, main threats in mind. One is North Korea, and the major one is that uh, China is also massively increasing spending on its armed forces year on year. So I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's quite natural for Japan to be spending some money on their defense at the moment. It's also worth remembering that Japan still only spends about 1% of its GDP every year, which is, which is quite small for, for a major country. Right. Now, as you say, it's quite natural for any uh, country uh, with the means to do so to modernize their military. In which uh, ways, in which capabilities uh, of the SDF are uh, being reinforced in particular with this new budget? Sure. Well, the new budget, uh, from what we know and what's being leaked into the media, is that they will be... Uh, upgrading their uh, missile defense capabilities, particularly with PAC-3 and SM-3 missiles from the United States, which are made in Japan now as well. They're also um, rumored to be investing in a longer-range uh, anti-ship missile, which can be launched from uh, both uh, from islands especially, uh, which is aimed at uh, deterring China's presence around the Senkaku. Um, but the defense budget is over is a much larger and long-term project and they're they're actually modernizing all aspects of the military at the moment as you uh no, very well. Uh, in South Korea, and again, I assume in China as well, uh, there was a lot of consternation over uh, this recent push as far as Japan's post-war constitution is concerned and uh, what is deemed to be pacifist or, or, or peaceful provisions. Um, does... Do you feel that the fears in South Korea then are a bit overblown as to uh, what they are seeing with the uh, defense spending as well as uh, the changes that they have been trying to make in the Constitution? Well, I think the changes in the Constitution are very interesting. So when we go back to last year, the legislation was, was changed in Japan, which loosened the use of military force but did, did not make Japan like a, like a regular country. There are still many restrictions. Um, so uh, how Japan uses its force outside of self-defense is still very much um, dependent on the political situation inside Japan. Whether Japan will change its constitution completely, uh, right now opinion polls suggest that it would be extremely unpopular. Um, so it's very difficult to imagine a scenario where Japan will undertake offensive action on anyone, as it is a U.S. ally and the U.S. would not allow it. 
So I think the fears are probably slightly overblown. However, it's something that, that is certainly worth monitoring. Right, and especially, I suppose, uh, the history involved uh, pre-World yeah. War II and, and, of course, some of the uh, the bitter memories that I suppose a lot of people in this region still have regarding this. You mentioned the North Korean yeah. um, threat, but uh, to a larger extent, China seems to be uh, on the minds of Japanese policymakers uh, in crafting this type of a budget. Is the North Korean threat in some ways... Um, I, and this is, again, the critical point of view on this, but is it somewhat exaggerated uh, because of the fact that there is this uh, deterrent force uh, being aided by uh, the mighty U.S. military here? And perhaps um, they're using North Korea as a bit of a wedge to sort of uh, increase not only their own, but the American military presence in the region? Uh, I'm, that's, a, that's a difficult question. I think... To answer it, you have to go back to, to really 1997, when Japan first altered its defense guidelines specifically to deal with North Korea. And since then, they've, they've slowly developed capabilities to counter, to counter North Korea's uh, missile capabilities. Uh, so there's always been a, a, a consistent concern in Japan regarding the capability of North Korea to, to coerce with the nuclear capabilities or other weapons of mass destruction. I think the use of North Korea certainly sometimes has some public uh, relations benefits. I think we saw recently the the very public deployment of a of a missile battery in the center of Tokyo, right. which probably had quite little uh, little uh, military uh, utility, but certainly was a good public relations exercise to show that the, the Japanese defense forces were there protecting the, the Japanese people. But as for using it as a wedge issue with the United States, no, I, I don't think so. The United States is in Asia right now uh, as part of the rebalance or the pivot, and that is largely to do with China. So there are certain capabilities there for to deal with North Korea, um, but uh, and they will be adjusted as North Korea's threat changes. But uh, I really, it, it's all about China, and I think the United okay. States is aware of that. Well, speaking of China, and, and we, we talk about uh, the, the emergence of China and how it is perceived to be a challenge to American interests, mm-hmm. to America's allies' interests, but these territorial uh, disputes, and we can talk sure. about the South Korean contacts with the Atokto Islets, uh, you mentioned China and the Senkaku uh, Diayu uh, conflicts, and even Russia with the, uh, the northern territories of Kuril, whoever uh, side you're on, I suppose it differs on how you would uh, call those places. But if, Korea, if Japan keeps increasing its uh, military capabilities and keeps making tweaks to how they interpret uh, the Constitution, is there a fear that um, there would be an increased chance of military conflict in regards to those kind of territories? Okay, that's a, that's a really good question. I think the, we need to take them individually. Okay. Actually. If we look at the the, the the territorial problems with Russia. Uh, Japan has taken a very interesting uh, stance recently. Uh, Abe is, has really tried to use diplomacy more than anything else to, to, to resolve this issue. And of all the G7 leaders, Abe has certainly been the most positive towards Putin since Ukraine. So I think there's little chance of, of military action being used there. And in reality, Japan is moving capabilities uh, from the north towards the south. Then when we look at, uh, at the issue of Dokto, um, really, two, two things constrain Japan. The first one is the United States. J- Japan is an ally of the United States. South Korea is an ally of the United States. And I think the U.S. would, would look very uh, unfavorably at any attempt to, yeah. to coerce or use force over this issue. And the cost would certainly be too high. And at the same time, the, Jap- the South Korean military sorry, is, is quite, 
powerful. And any attempt by Japan to, to do something over Docto would be extremely costly for the, for the Japanese. So I, I just can't see any prospect of that happening. Then when you go down to the Senkaku, the things are a little bit different. Um, in that area, Japan is bolstering what, what it calls its deterrent capability. So it is, it's, it's building enough capability in that area to impose significant costs on China if they try and do anything of force around there. But they're also building up their presence, their Coast Guard presence, their naval presence. And as China is doing the same thing in, this, in that region, there is always a possibility of a clash. But I'm not sure you can blame that specifically on Japan's increased military spending. It's just the nature of the conflict down there. Right. It's very interesting because it, it all differs on the various diplomatic strategies that Tokyo is uh, waging as well as, I suppose, just the simple uh, logistical fact of who, which nation actually has effective control over those uh, territories or islets, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So Japan right now controls the Senkaku and the islands around it. So if China wanted to take them, they'd have to take them. Right. Force, Whereas or, Korea owns, or, uh, controls Tokyo, where there would be a absolutely. very difficult situation for them to try to change. Very, very do. It's almost unimaginable, in my view, that they would try to change it. But it will not stop them from claiming it. But changing it by force, is, it, it's, it's, not, it's, not, uh, it's not an easy thing to see. A final question here, and again, I, I suppose it keeps uh, raising the concerns that have been voiced in South Korea in regards to mm-hmm. Japan. Uh, they're, they're, the, the fear of, let's say, uh, a preemptive force, also the fear of uh, Japanese troops uh, landing on the peninsula in the, in, the, mm. in the event of a conflict. Do you foresee in the next few years ahead where Japan does play a more active role in, in conflicts, whether it's on the peninsula or in other places of the world, uh, becoming equal partners with the United States, not just sending medics or, or other types of non-combat personnel? Sure. Um, I, I think it's, that's um, probably a, a political question more than anything else. I think in terms of UN contributions, I think we will see more Japanese uh, contributions around the world in UN peacekeeping and certainly more robust contributions. So beyond medics, we might see actual peace enforcement troops Mm -hmm. going in, and that's in line with legislation. As for troops uh, in the Korean Peninsula, I can't see that happening without the Korean government themselves giving permission. I think um, what the change in legislation has allowed, it has given uh, Japan the ability to cooperate greater in a greater extent with the United States in areas outside of direct, sorry, areas not directly related to Japanese security. So I think the big, the big issue now will be the South China Sea, and we'll see what, what Japanese forces are going to do down there. So they're already uh, increasing uh, cooperation with uh, the Philippines, Vietnam, Indonesia, and... Uh, Right now, that's in terms of uh, capacity building and exercises. And But whether we'll see joint U.S. patrols in that region, right now I don't think the U.S. would like them to because it might escalate the situation. But certainly there is the, the possibility of that happening. But I don't think South Koreans need to be too worried of Japanese troops uh, landing on the peninsula in the case of, in the case of war. Right. I, think they, I think that would be a, politically a very difficult thing for them to do. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. But Professor Bowes, thank you very much for joining us. Appreciate your insights. No problem. Thank you very much.
Moving on to our next topic, also uh, regarding the military, China has made no secrets of its uh, long-term ambitions of becoming a global maritime power uh, with the necessary reach to protect its interests and exert influence uh, in uh, all parts of the world. And to this effort, China is constructing the country's first ever permanent military outpost uh, outpost based on foreign soil in the country of Djibouti. This is a small African country. It occupies a key choke point between the Gulf of Aden and the Red Sea uh, to get some analysis and the geostrategic implications of this. Uh, we have joining us from the University of Bristol, international development professor Jeffrey Henderson. Hello. Hi. Hello there. Thank you for joining us, professor. Uh, this uh, first ever overseas military base uh, built by China in Djibouti, is it a historic milestone in your view? Uh, it probably is, but it's actually not very surprising either that this development and, uh, and perhaps subsequent ones are taking place. Would you like me to elaborate? That sure. Point? Yes, please. Well, you know, the point is, is that uh, as China becomes increasingly a you know global uh, economic and and political power, it's it's hardly surprising that it's going to need to uh, to police its uh, its lines of trade, um, and of which the uh, the Indian Ocean is is crucial for a variety of reasons, but particularly for um, oil and gas. Uh, Coming uh, not merely from the uh, the Persian Gulf, but actually uh, from uh, countries like Angola in uh, in West Africa, also. I, you know, one of the things about uh, other countries in East Asia, South Korea being one of them, Japan mm-hmm. being another obvious example, is that their uh, their trade routes across the Indian Ocean are policed effectively by the United States. I, China doesn't have that, right. so you know, I, and we live in an increasingly turbulent world. So it's not as in the sense that uh, the Chinese government, Chinese uh, military and strategic planners might want to develop military bases uh, on the Indian Ocean littoral in order to uh, to help uh, secure those trade routes. Now, of course, our audience, uh, although of course very uh, educated and uh, well-read on various uh, events around the world, uh, many of us don't really know about this country, Djibouti. Uh, you mentioned the trade lanes and, and the very strategic interests, uh, interest, but specifically, uh, I suppose, uh, from the uh, Chinese policymakers' point of view, why did they select Djibouti as the first country to, to build an overseas military base? Ah, well, that is an, uh, an interesting question, I, because it, clearly in principle, they could have developed military bases in, in other countries around the, uh, the Indian Ocean littoral, Pakistan, for instance, Sri Lanka, uh, you know, perhaps, uh, perhaps uh, Myanmar, for, mm-hmm. for that matter, where they've, uh, in recent years, uh, uh, developed, um, uh, you know, both commercial ports and uh, domestic naval ports for, for those respective countries. Uh, the connection to Djibouti um, is likely to relate to their significant and still increasing investments in Africa. Mm. Um, I, you know, clearly in a sense they've had a free run in in, uh, in, in security terms, in terms of the security of those investments, uh, you know, both in oil and in minerals extraction, for instance, right? Uh, but in the future, they, you know, they clearly are going to be confronted by problems, perhaps um, 
political disturbances in the countries where they, African countries where they have those investments, where, you know, frankly, the, uh, the uh, you know, uh, the military, the Chinese military is, is going to be needed uh, in order to, to render them secure. So my guess is, is that Djibouti um, is partly to do with the uh, Indian Ocean trade routes I mm. mentioned, and it's partly to do uh, with the Chinese government and its planners anticipating conflict situations in, uh, you know, some of the, the central and, uh, and east and indeed west African countries where they have significant investments. Uh, so they need a military presence somewhere or other on the African continent to help out with that. The third reason, and it links to my, uh, the, the point about their investments in Africa, is of course uh, there's a proposal that there's going to be a railway line built from Djibouti to Ethiopia where um, uh, the Ethiopian government is extremely friendly uh, to, to China and China has extensive and growing economic interests in that country. So, you know, put those together and I think that's three reasons why Djibouti has been chosen plus the fact the government of Djibouti presumably is uh, is obviously very friendly to China. Sure. Um, you know, we have to bear in mind it's not the only military base in Djibouti. There are at least three or four others. Now, in terms of as we've seen right now in various conflicts, especially in the Middle East, uh, in that region and in Syria, and because of the uh, strategic interests mm-hmm. of, say, uh, for example, Russia and how they have been involved uh, with that fight against the rebels, uh, is it potential? Is it is it uh, possible then in the future if China keeps increasing uh, these overseas military installations, particularly in the Middle East and Africa, that uh, they also uh, may be drawn into some of these conflicts to protect their own interests? Well, I, you know, so far the Chinese government has, uh, has had this policy of what it calls non-interference with the, uh, the domestic affairs of sovereign countries. But increasingly, as they expand their economic interests uh, around the globe, um, it seems to me that they themselves, under you know, uh, certain circumstances, uh, are going to be an object of concern. They themselves will experience uh, security problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore, inevitably, it seems to me that the Chinese military is going to have to step up and and play uh, much more of a global role under those circumstances. So, drawn into the Middle East conf- conflict, uh, conflicts, I should say, in plural, I'd very much doubt that. Uh, but in, in principle, I think that it's highly likely that the Chinese military will be involved, either on its own, nor in part of multinational forces uh, in various parts of the world in the future. And the final question on this, as you pointed out in the beginning of this discussion, it, it was not a surprise to you. This is almost inevitable for China to to try and uh, exert its influence, especially its own economic interests with, with trade routes. The Navy, though, and from my reading of this uh, as a non-military expert, uh, it is still the case that uh, the uh, U.S. military um, far dwarfs any other nation in the world. In fact, if you look at naval power, um, it, it it is uh, immensely bigger and more powerful than even all the other countries combined. And this is still a generational process, is it not, for China to try to catch up to the U.S. in naval power? Uh, it certainly is, and it's not. It's actually not clear to me uh, that the uh, China even wants to match the United States in terms of naval power. Mm. I think what we ought to bear in mind, for instance, is that not only is it uh, spending 
on the military as a proportion of GDP way, way below that of the United States. Right. Uh, it, it spending has obviously increased, but it's still outstripped by the United States uh, to a significant extent. But actually, as a, as a, as a measure against the size of its economy, uh, Chinese military spending is, is actually far below that of India. Yeah? Mm. So, I, you know, we need to temper these, you know, understandable concerns with uh, uh, spreading of, of uh, military influence by China in various parts of the globe. We have to temper that with the fact that, um, you know, yes, it's happening, but boy, oh boy, the United States is certainly number one, and all of the indications are, uh, as a military power, uh, that that's going to remain the case for a long time to come. All right. Well, uh, we are going to have to leave it there. Professor Henderson, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. And that was thank Professor uh, Jeffrey Henderson from the University of Bristol.